All right, we're looking today at three faith shortcuts, three faith shortcuts that get you nowhere. And all three of these faith shortcuts are, um, at one time or another, we're going to be tempted to take them. At one time or another, we're going to be on one of these. Some of you may be, some of us may be on one of these shortcuts right now, and they lead nowhere. Um, and, but, but I love shortcuts, and I think, uh, I think a lot of people love shortcuts, hacks, anything. Uh, I, I, I have all kinds of them. You teach me a shortcut to do something, a hack on my phone or whatever, I am so excited, and I will share it with 100 other people. Uh, one of my favorite ones is on uh, an iPhone, uh, and it's, it's still amazing how many don't know this, but if you, let's say you're typing something on your iPhone, and you had a mistake, and you want to go back, you put your finger on the space bar and just hold it there for about a second and your whole keyboard becomes a trackpad. And then you can just, with the trackpad, move your cursor to right where you need it. I have told that to several people who have said it has changed their life. <laughs> um, well, by their response, it seems that way. It's like, game changer, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, so uh, another one of my favorites is uh, I, I go a lot of times and study at Bethel Seminary Library, and I have found a shortcut to the parking lot. Uh, it saves, especially on a really cold day or a rainy day or whatever, it saves all kinds of walking by going through a janitor closet <laughs> and going right out. And, and I'm always afraid I'm going to run into a janitor. Why are you, what are you doing here? You know, I, I'm, I'm very nervous about that. So sh some shortcuts are great. Shortcuts, no problem. They're, you know, innocuous. Um, uh, but some shortcuts are not uh, quite like that. You, you wouldn't want to be going into surgery, and the surgeon says, uh, normally this takes four hours. I think we can get it down to one hour because I was watching some YouTube videos. <laughs> you know, uh, a, a great shortcut uh, that some of you may want to try was tried on my wife when she was in high school. I think she was a senior. And a college-age guy that was very interested in her said that God had impressed on him that she was supposed to marry him. So that's a great shortcut. You can avoid all the, you know, really having to get to know each other or anything like that. Uh, a little bit dangerous. Uh, so three faith shortcuts that get you to nowhere. And we're going to discern them from looking at what is happening to Jesus on the cross. Because that's where we are right now. We're in that. That's our passage today. Um, and the idea comes out of what happens. As Jesus is on the cross, there are these mockers. And they're all saying basically the same thing. They're mocking him and saying, if he really is the son of God, if he really is who he says he is, why don't you just come on down? If you really are who you say you are, why don't you just come down from that cross right now? Now, that's a shortcut because he could do that. And it's, it's, a, it's a hack, and it is an actual temptation that Jesus faced. We know that it's a temptation because that's exactly how the devil tempted him after his baptism. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's fasting, and the devil tempts him with three temptations. And at the core of all three temptations are, don't do the cross thing. You know, go for the glory right now and just... You know, you're not on the cross yet, but forego that. Take a shortcut to the glory that uh, you want to experience and that you and your father want to experience together. So uh, that is the shortcut that he was being tempted with. And thankfully for us, he stayed on the cross. Uh, and uh, 
he calls us to avoid similar faith shortcuts. And we'll, we'll discern these from the passages. So, uh, from the passage. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. And you can grab one of those. If you're using a smartphone or tablet device, uh, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. And uh, we're looking at that passage because we're in a, uh, a mini-series within a larger series. So we're in a mini-series uh, called Jesus the Savior. And it's part of a larger series as we're working our way through the New Testament through key passages uh, in the entire New Testament. Uh, if you're new with us, by the way, <clears throat> inside the New Here brochure, hopefully you got one of these, we have a um, sermon application guide. And there are a couple of things I want to point out. First of all, a lot of the main ideas that you can take home with you are written down here, and you can supplement it with your own notes. On the inside <clears throat> of this are some family discussion questions because the kids are studying the same passage today. So if you have kids down... In the kids' ministry, they're studying the same passage, uh, a lot of the same ideas, and so this gives you something to talk about when you meet with them afterwards. And then there's personal reflection questions, small group questions is what our small groups use. And so the whole idea there is that this is about bringing the story of God to life uh, in our daily lives and, and not just about getting more information. All right, so we begin in verse 32, Matthew 27, begin in verse 32. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. So Jesus is carrying the cross uh, to Golgotha, and uh, they make another man carry it for him. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. Excuse me. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. But let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. So you see, the passers-by, the leaders of Israel, and then it says, even the rebels. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran to get a sponge and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar put it on the staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried again, cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So the first 
faith shortcut that leads nowhere is discipleship without saturation. Now, let me, let me explain because that, that on its own doesn't mean anything. <laughs> um, what I'm talking about there is attempting to follow Jesus, which is what discipleship is. It's following Jesus. Attempting to follow Jesus without saturating your life in his teaching and in his Bible, God's word, um, and in the story of God, the story that God is weaving that we learn about through his word. So Jesus is in his darkest hour. The sin, uh, our sins, if we're followers of Jesus, our sin, sins that we've committed, sins that we have yet to commit, and sins of believers, people who had faith in God, going all the way back, all the way back even before Jesus, all of them are being put on him on the cross. And he's experiencing, in some mysterious way, the wrath of God the Father on that sin. There's a darkness, a separation, a rending that's happening that is beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. Just, just think of the largest black hole in the universe. It's a deeper hole and darkness than that for Jesus. This is, this is the Son who created everything that there is experiencing the wrath of his father within himself because he's one with him. And the thing that comes out of his mouth is scripture. That's what comes out of his mouth. Look at uh, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma, sakvachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's praying the words of Psalm 22, verbatim. And it's not the only words of that psalm that he prayed or that are brought to mind in his being on that cross. Um, Jesus valued the Bible, which for him was the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. He told his contemporaries, judge my claims by reading your Bible, and seeing whether I match what the Bible had been pointing to. He was saturated in the Bible. He was saturated in the story that God has been weaving. He demonstrated in almost every breath how important God's Word is, and he called us to be devoted to God's Word, but also called us to be devoted to His words. When he sent out his disciples, he said, make disciples, teaching them um, to obey all that I have commanded, all my commandments. But we're tempted to hack that. We're tempted to take a shortcut and not value Scripture and saturate ourselves in Scripture the way that he called us and modeled for us how to saturate ourselves in Scripture. How, how, how do we do that? You know, just give you some time. You could come up with probably some things from your own life and things I can come up with things from my own life. Let me, let me just suggest three to get, get the, the juices flowing. One of them is we can do that when our devotional life consists of nothing more substantial than a verse of the day in our inbox. It's, it's not going to cut it. It really isn't going to cut it. We're not going to be able to face this world, the challenges of this world, the suffering, the things that we're 
we go through where a verse of the day is not going to cut it. When the level of our interaction with Scripture in our faith community leaves us biblically illiterate. Unfortunately, uh, the, the uh, model of doing church that uh, has become prevalent doesn't teach Scripture. It, it, it's run by people who love Scripture, but somehow they don't ensure that it's being passed on to, to their people. Uh, another way is that we remove Scripture from the core essentials and foundations of our faith. And there's people doing that everywhere. These people within, when we say like-minded people, Bible-believing people that are taking Scripture and saying it's, it's secondary and what's first is all this other really good stuff, experiencing, relationship, community, all this kind of stuff. But let's set aside Scripture and let's, let's emphasize all these other things. Now, why is this a problem? Um, why is anything less than saturation in Scripture a problem? Well, it's because we are, the people of God have always been a word-formed, story-formed people. Even before there, it was written down, we were a word-formed people. Go way, way back, and it was the words that were passed on by the patriarchs. We are a word-formed, story-formed people. Scripture shows us how to think. It, it gives us a worldview. It gives us a perspective for looking at the world, at everything in the world. It shows us how to suffer, but it also shows us how to thrive. It shows us how to fail, and it shows us how to win. It shows us how to reconcile when our relationships are broken, but it also shows us how to have strong relationships built on love. It's God's primary way of speaking to us. It cannot be replaced by anything else. And when it is, it's just, you're just one generation away from walking away from the faith. Just one generation away. You cannot pass on something that isn't based on Scripture. Last week, I told the story of Jerry Sitzer, and just a quick review in case you weren't here. He uh, was in a head-on collision. He lost one of his four children, his wife and his mother. And his son, a short time after that, asked him, do you think mom can see us right now? And he said, eventually he said, yes, I think so. And, and he's, the son said, how? It would make her sad because we're so sad. And he thought some more and he said, well, she, she knows the story and she knows it ends well. When our lives aren't saturated in scripture, we actually don't know the story. We don't know that it ends well. We go through things in our lives and we go through difficulties. And, I, and sometimes it's emotion speaking when we're going through a difficulty and we rail at God and the Psalms are filled with that. But sometimes it's ignorance. It's just not knowing the story. It's just not knowing that, that detail after detail as you read the story of God, God's people have incredible ups and incredible downs, incredible failures, incredible difficulties, incredible suffering. And God doesn't, he says, this is the story. This is how it happens. This is how it goes. And we don't know that story. We can't know that it ends well. We can't know where the story is going. The Bible tells us, God tells us through his word, but we can't know that and we can't build our life on that reality. Don't take the shortcut of discipleship without saturation. I went over to the new story of God group that's starting 
today at 9 a.m. started at 9 a.m. there right now. And my parting words to them was, my parting words to them was, uh, work hard. Remember, this is boot camp. And I know that's not a great selling point for people who have not yet gone through the story of God, that it's a spiritual boot camp. But it is, and it's not easy. And if you're going to get anything out of it, you, you have to apply yourself uh, Monday through Saturday uh, to get the full benefit of it. But you come out of it biblically literate and really understanding where the story is going and the details of, of the story as how they get there. Second shortcut is we reflect uh, that we see in this passage um, is glo- uh, glory without suffering. We want glory without suffering. Now, oh, it's fixed. Okay, it was, I had it wrong yesterday. All right, glory without suffering. Now, I've already alluded to this, uh, spoke to it already earlier, because the people, the mockers are saying, come down, Satan uh, tempts Jesus, basically. Don't go through all that suffering. Go for the glory without uh, going through the suffering. Uh, But Jesus made it clear that it was necessary. He used the word necessary. It is necessary, this is what he told the disciples, necessary that I go to the cross, that I suffer. And it was because it was what his mission was all about. And it wasn't, and we'll talk to that in in a moment in the third point, but right now, understand that he was modeling for us the reality that we, um, we will suffer before we experience glory. That that's the way it is. Suffering, then glory, is how it works. There is no shortcut. It is the way it is. It is the way it is for believers of all ages, all times, for you and for me. Why is this? Literally dozens of reasons given in Scripture. I'm just going to give you three and some Scripture. The first one is, Jesus told us this, many hated him. So if we identify with him, we will be hated by many. And he said it's pretty clear. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. You follow Jesus, you identify with Jesus, you're going to be different. Um, And there are going to be people that will hate you for it. Uh, A second uh, reason why uh, we, we suffer, the world we live in is broken and evil triumphs in this world. It's part of the the whole, not going to go into it, but the whole already, not yet, the already of the kingdom, but not yet in, in its fullness. So this is what Jesus says, John sixteen thirty three, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Thirdly, suffering grows and refines our faith, and there's dozens of different ways of looking at this, dozens of nuances to what this means, um, let me give you three from three passages of Scripture. Romans 5.3, not only so, but we also glory in our suffering because we know that suffering produces, and there's the key word, it produces. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, 
character and character hope. There's no, he's saying there's not a shortcut to developing character. It goes through the path of suffering. 1 Peter 1.6 In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So there's a refining um, quality like fire refines gold. 2 Corinthians 1.9, the Apostle Paul has just listed suffering after suffering that he's had. And he said, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So what is he saying? It is like we have died over and over and over again. And without those sufferings, I would be relying on myself. But in those sufferings, I learned to rely on God, who gives the ultimate hope, which is whatever suffering, the, the way the story ends, it's not all of what the story ends, but part of what the story ends, is that we have the hope of the kingdom, of the new creation, and of all things being made right, raising the dead, everything that's dead. You can choose to pursue a path of glory without suffering, but when you do, you are no longer in the path of Christ, and you're not on a path to future glory. You can choose that. We, we, all of us can choose that. So how do we choose the path of glory without suffering? What does that look like? And I go, oh, I don't want to do that, so uh, what does that look like? Well, let me, let me tell you a couple of ways that uh, you can do that. Uh, one of them, if you want to choose to not suffer, you, you won't avoid it completely, but one of the things that you can do is hold tightly to what you have. Uh, you will minimize the amount of suffering that you'll experience. There's some things that you can't avoid. You can't avoid a, a health thing, and um, you can't avoid an accident or something like that. Uh, but set those things aside. If you hold on to what you have, you will minimize suffering. Uh, you can insulate yourself. Um, hold on to your money. Hold on to your time. Hold on to your ex, you know, expending energy. L live a gated life. Live a gated life that keeps you insulated from people who, have, uh, who are in difficulty. You live a gated life against people who are having emotional difficulty. You can live a gated life against people who have financial difficulty. Uh, you can just keep, keep yourself from getting involved with these people. Keep yourself from being disappointed by these people because they're going to let you down in all kinds of ways. It's going to be hard. It's going to take so much energy. It's going to, it's going to break your heart sometimes. So if you want to pursue glory without suffering, hold on tightly to what you have. Another way to do it is keep your faith to yourself. Don't go public with your faith at school. Don't let other people know you're a Christian. I could create problems. Remember what Jesus said? You know, people hate me. They're going to hate you because you're identified with me. So if you want to go for the glory without suffering, don't, don't let your faith impact how you do your work uh, in, your, in your job. 
Um, don't let it in, you know, work its way into your relationships with other people. Don't, don't witness for Christ. Don't stand for justice anywhere. Don't stand for truth. It's just, it's going to complicate your life. It's going to make it really, really difficult. And, um, and that way you can go for the glory without suffering. But as I said, if you go for the glory without the suffering, you're not on the path of Christ. And you're not on the path to future glory. So the first shortcut that leads nowhere is to try to be a follower of Jesus without saturating ourselves in the story of God and in the Bible and in his teaching. And the second is to pursue a path of glory without suffering where you go for victories and wins and you don't allow anything into your life. You, you play it safe, you don't take risks, and, um, and you don't have the emotional turmoil that comes with all of that. Thirdly is righteousness without a sacrifice. That's the third shortcut. Righteousness without a sacrifice. Now, righteousness is a big theological word in Scripture. It has uh, multiple meanings, uh, but it's usually a pretty loaded word, especially in the New Testament. And righteousness refers to relationships, so it, it speaks to a good way to remember that is just the word right in there. Our, our, you're being right with God and right standing with God. We are separated from God by our rebellion against him. Uh, through our sin, through our choosing our own way, through our setting up ourselves as gods, through our setting up other things or other people as gods. And so righteousness is getting into a right relationship with God. But it's also a legal term. It speaks to our guilt, our real guilt for sin and what our sins do and how they hurt people and how they keep hurting people because they just keep I mean, our sins, we hurt someone who then hurt someone else who hurt someone else. And, and our sins just keep, keep going out and, and doing more and more damage. So righteousness is being right with God. It is uh, a relational and a legal term. Now, of course, on the legal end, we are not innocent. We're not. But we sometimes seek a righteousness without a sacrifice. Uh, that's what Jesus is doing on the cross. He is the sacrifice that makes us legally before God not guilty because he pays the price. Before he goes uh, to the cross, just uh, you know, hours before, a couple of days before, he has a, uh, celebrates Passover with his disciples. He takes the Passover bread. He takes the Passover cup. And he says, these were all pointing to me. And what I am going to do, which is my body is going to be broken for you. And in the context of all of his teaching, in the New Testament, it explains all of this. As you go back into the Old Testament, the whole, you know, this whole story, what you discover is he is the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb of God, going all the way back to that Passover Lamb. He is the sacrificial Lamb of God. That's what it's all been pointing to. He is dying in our place. For us means in our place. He's taking the wrath of God for our guilt on himself. He is guilty on that cross. And we get his righteousness. We get his rightness with God. It gets transferred to us. And um, that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing on the cross. Our righteousness, our righteousness requires a sacrifice. So Jesus is the sacrifice. He's the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now the point is made dramatically in Matthew's gospel. We pick up in verse 51. At that moment, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
the earth shook. The rocks split and tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city, meaning Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. When the centurion, so there's a Roman uh, military leader, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to take care of his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, or James and John. Set aside the dead people for a moment. Not for a moment, set it aside. (laughs) Because nobody knows what that's about. It's like, nobody knows, and then what? That's the question everybody asks. Like, what? Then what? Like, did they stay alive? Were they, like, covered with dirt? You know, did they still have clothes on? You know, all the questions. Uh, Did they just return to their graves that night? We have no idea. We don't know. But this is clear. The curtain is clear. See, the temple was filled with all kinds of boundaries and barriers to keep people, the wrong people, from going to certain levels of the temple. There's a certain amount of access for some, certain amount of access. The, the final, ultimate barrier was this thick, thick, thick temple that, I mean, a, a curtain that went up, you know, just dozens of feet. And it was what separated everyone, including the high priest, from the Holy of Holies, right behind it. And Only the high priest could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement and had to dress down to peasant garb, take off all the priestly garments, and had to do a sacrifice on behalf of his own sins. Then they would tie a rope on him, and he would go back there once a year. And they tied the rope because if he had a heart attack or something while he's back there, nobody can go in and get him, and that could create a big problem, of course. So they could pull him out if necessary. I don't think they ever had to do that. Uh, but uh, there was preparation for that. That's how important this is. And that, that curtain, which symbolizes our separation from a holy God, in, in a very powerful way, gets torn in two. And from everything that we know of Scripture, even the teaching of Jesus, we know that what happened there was it was saying, now we have access to God through the righteousness of Jesus. Not our own righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus that he has transferred to us. We are made holy. Every single one of us who are followers of Jesus are called, in the scripture, are called saints. Holy ones. That's what saints means. We're all, so we can, we can go um, into the presence of God. Now, here's the problem. We're always trying to make ourselves righteous to make ourselves righteous. And it's a problem because we can't. And the scripture says that even if we could, um, it, it, no, it says if we could, then Jesus died for nothing. Here's what it says in Galatians. It says, I do not set aside, this is the apostle Paul, the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, which is what they were trying to do. They were saying, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but we also have to keep the law in order to be righteous. No. Christ, if, if you could do that, 
Christ died for nothing. Because it's the only way we can be made righteous with God. But we're always trying to make ourselves righteous. So uh, Lois and I, my wife and I, we we belong to a, a book club with some of her fellow workers and their spouses. It was our turn the last time around for coming up with a book idea. And I came with some book ideas, but I also suggested, uh, how about we kind of break the mold and listen to some of my favorite podcasts? I've curated seven podcasts uh, from all the podcasts that I listen to, and, and they're ones that I've heard over the last two or three years that were some of my favorites. Would you like to do that? And they're like, yeah, that'll be interesting. So we did that. We listened to seven podcasts. We actually had one of the best discussions ever. One of the, pers- one of the people in the group said, uh, so... Was there a theme in this that you wanted to get across? I said, yeah, the theme is I loved these podcasts. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I did think about that, that statement, and there was a theme that ran through about three of them, three of, three of the seven, um, and it had this theme of we think we're better than we are. And because we think we're better than we are, we think that if we just try a little harder, we can make ourselves righteous. We can make ourselves right with God, that God's going to look down and go, you know, you've arrived. And um, I'll just kind of give you a quick, quick overview. Uh, one is about a police officer in a town neighboring uh, Ferguson who is, has to go through some uh, Im- implicit bias training, and he doesn't want to, and he's sure he doesn't have implicit bias, and he goes through the training, specifically racial implicit bias. He goes through the training, and about halfway through the training, which he's not paying attention, he's on his phone under his desk and everything like that, somebody says something that he listens, it finally gets through, and when he's done, he's gone, you know, he just plays back the track of his memories, and he's like, yes, I have implicit bias, and the interesting thing about it is, he's a black police officer. We think we're better than we are. No, that's not me. I don't have that. Uh, second one was uh, origin stories. These, um, is a, uh, that one was from, that, that one I just said, I think was from Invisibilia. These are, most of these are NPR, National Public Radio podcasts. Another one was called Origin Stories on uh, um, this, this American Life. And it was, uh, one of the segments was about how every company, super successful companies, all have to have this like rags to riches origin story. It's like every, every, multi-billion dollar company in America started in a garage. And the founder started with nothing. And so the guy who does the article says, uh, okay, so I researched it, and he, and he shows all the research. It was in Forbes or one of those. And he says, reality is, uh, most of them went to Ivy League schools. So they had the wherewithal to do that. Now, I'm not, I'm not knocking these guys, okay, because there are a lot of other people in Ivy League schools that never created great, great companies. Okay, so they have surpassed their peers, but they didn't start with nothing. Uh, Almost all of them went to work for a big corporation with a really good paying job where they learned their craft. And uh, almost all of them started with millions of dollars in venture capital. They're in a garage, yes, with millions of dollars in the bank. Uh, and so there, there's, there's another one I'm not going to tell you about, but here's, here's what the guy who wrote that article said verbatim. We think we're better than we are. We think we're better than we are. And that's, that's what I'm talking about, the shortcut. Without a sacrifice, we want to make ourselves good with God based on what we've done. And, and, that, and, and 
it's because we think we're better than we are that we are tempted to take the shortcut. And we can do it only because we share in the practices and line of Adam and Eve. We can do it because we can blame other people when we sin. Like they blame God, or Adam did. You gave me that woman. Uh, we can minimize our sin. It's not that bad. And then our favorite way of minimizing our sin is we compare ourselves to others who are worse than we are. And that's the only way. That's the only way we can actually think that we can be made righteous. We can be righteous before a perfect, holy God. Either that or we bring God down to our level. That's another way we do it. We don't recognize his greatness, his holiness. But Jesus died for our sins. We receive what he did, the Bible tells us, by faith alone. Not faith plus something else. Faith alone. By trusting what he did. And we get to receive it through grace alone. By his grace. That's unmerited favor. So let's pray.